Welcome to The Boiler Room, an arena podcast. We're your hosts, Santiago Martinez. And Julia Leitner. And this is a podcast for those who are working on campaigns right now and those who aspire to work on campaigns. And today we are talking about hiring and the hiring process. Uh, It's happening. People are doing it. I'm so excited. It's a crazy chaotic time. Maybe you are listening to this and you have, you're like, Santiago, I've I've applied so many times to so many different campaigns and I feel like I'm just, it's going into the void. And we thought it might be helpful to talk a little bit about like, what does this even look like on campaigns? What's the other side of it? Um, Especially if you're sitting at home anxiously waiting to hear a reply or maybe you have an interview. Yeah, I think the other side of it too is so important for those folks who are out there conducting interviews for the first time. Maybe you're a regional organizing director And it's the first time that you now are on the other side of the interview process and you're the one who is asking the questions and making the hiring decisions. And it's hard and it can be scary um, because you want to hire a great team and you want to make sure that you are taking into consideration all the things that you need to. And so this episode is also for you who are out there trying to figure out who should I hire? How do I create the most equitable and the best interview process possible? And so we wanted to just make sure that we had a conversation about that. And I think one important part of that is like also just how we kind of our experience with the hiring process. And so Julia, what did that look like for you when you were first getting involved? Yeah. So I actually first got started on campaigns in 2008. I walked into a campaign office in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I grew up, um, because I was going to turn 18 a month before the 2008 election. It was the first election that I could vote in. I was super excited. And I walked in as a volunteer for the Tom Udall for Senate campaign in New Mexico. And I spent the summer and all the way through the fall as a campaign fellow on that race, um, volunteering because I was getting school credit for it and, um, you know, helping to elect Tom Udall as a Democratic senator from the state of New Mexico. How about you, Santiago? How did you get started on campaigns? Well, I got started in my home state of Arizona. Uh, I was a volunteer for Barack Obama's campaign. I had all sorts of conceptions of like what a campaign office would look like, uh, what I would be doing when I walked into that office. It was completely different. The first thing they did was give me a phone script and a, 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 a cell phone and I was making calls and they invited me back and I started going nonstop and just started getting no, to know people. That's how I ended up getting my first like campaign position was just making relationships uh, with people who were working on those campaigns uh, as they started to go state to state. Uh, during the primaries in 2008. I ended up in North Carolina. That was where my first like real campaign job was. I had a I had a quick maybe 30 minute interview and an offer was made and they were like, can you fly to Charlotte, North Carolina yesterday? And I was, and I was like not even prepared for that in my mind in terms of either going across country, much less like, I was like, oh, I'll be there in like two weeks <laughs> to wrap up things here. Uh, and that was my first like intro to like the craziness that is campaigns and the breakneck speed that it really operates at. Yeah, there's so many of those times where you know you get an offer on a campaign and you're asked to be there yesterday, 
or you're asked to be there a week from now. I know in 2016, uh, I worked on the Clinton campaign in Ohio, and I sent my resume out into the world. You know, I used that link on the website that was apply to be an organizer. No mention of which states it was for, no mention of sort of what the timeline or requirements really were. Um, so I wrote a very heartfelt uh, essay basically in their, um, in their box and submitted my resume. And I ended up getting callbacks from that from two different states. Uh, so just wanna also put it out there that if you are one of those folks who is admitting your resume into the void, so to speak, um, people are looking at those resumes because everywhere right now, you know, needs really good staff. And most recently, I got to be on the other side of this hiring process as well. I was uh, working with the Warren campaign in California and I helped hire a lot of our organizers. Uh, I hired an amazing team of training associates uh, for my training team in California, as well as our regional organizing directors. And so now having been on both sides of this process, all I can say is it's challenging for both those of you who are interviewing and for those of you who are doing the interviews, uh, but we're here today to help demystify some of the process and think about how to make this less of a headache, more enjoyable, and just like a better process with better outcomes for everyone. Yeah, and that's why I'm so glad that one, you're here as my co-host, uh, so that we can talk a little bit about that interview process. Like, what does an actual interview look like? You might, like Julia mentioned earlier, you might be on a campaign right now and are, you know, kind of on the cusp of like, you have maybe so many resumes have been submitted to you and now you're like, oh my gosh, I have to go through all of these and try to find the right person who I needed yesterday. And, you know, one of the things we'll talk with some of our other guests about is the kind of knee-jerk reaction to go to what are the shortcuts um, to not have an intentional process. And so we'll, we'll try to steer you in the right direction of not taking those shortcuts because it's really valuable to invest it, the time and effort to hire the right staff um, and do that. But the first thing I wanted to talk to you, uh, Julia, about was just the actual process of interviewing people. Like what does an effective interview process look like? What should somebody be thinking about who's doing this for the first time? Yeah, to me, a successful interview needs to be a conversation. Uh, you don't want to interrogate someone, right? This should feel like it goes both ways. You need to react to what people are saying by giving positive affirmations or feedback, but a great interview feels like a conversation. Why is that important, Santiago? Because not only are you as the interviewer basing your decision off of this interview, but the interviewee is also deciding whether or not they want to join your team through this interview process. And if they feel like you, you know, maybe weren't listening to them or that, that you were rushed to get through a certain number of questions and it didn't feel like a conversation, then they might not be left with the best impression of your team. And so you also want to invest in making it feel conversational, making it feel like a good back and forth. Uh, so that you, you know, can leave that good impression both on both the interviewer and the interviewee. That's huge. And like, just also just knowing that this is like the first time, first maybe uh, official interaction that they're having with your campaign. 
and the competition is tough out there. Like there are a lot of campaigns hiring, a lot of really great organizations hiring, uh, and they're all looking for the same talented folks. Like they're looking for those diamonds in the rough people who uh, are going to be a game changer on their campaign. And so making that appeal, I think is huge. Yeah. The other thing I would say from that is that you want to make sure you're not asking too many questions when you are digging into this interview. So I know we're going to talk a little bit about this, but one of the things that I like to do before going into an interview is you need to be clear about like what are the nice to have for a certain role and what are the need to have. So I always like to give this example, like a nice to have sometimes is a college degree. I've known so many phenomenal organizers who, you know, didn't graduate college or so forth. So you can have a phenomenal organizer who doesn't have sort of a, a college degree. So thinking about what are the nice to have versus the need to have, and then basing your questions off of that and restraining yourself from asking too many questions, right? You want to go deep rather than broad. Uh, someone's resume should sort of give you the breadth of their experience. You want to use the interview to go deep. And so thinking about asking about your need to have, making sure you have the difference between the two things before going into this interview. Yeah, I think that's huge because also, you know, college degree is one, but also experience. Like there are, there's yeah. so many people, and this is, I think, something that we've seen a lot of uh, with in our work with uh, the Arena Careers website or uh, with graduates of uh, the Arena Academy, but there are so many people who come from different backgrounds who also have so much quality, applicable experience that they can lend. Um, and so, you know, we shouldn't just discount those folks. I think one thing connected to getting getting alignment on what do you need versus what do you want to have in a, in a candidate um, is also just the the alignment on both the evaluating process and potentially doing this interview process with others who are on the campaign. And so can you talk a little bit about what that looks like in terms of doing this as a team? Yeah. I mean, you should always have second opinions on, on hiring. So whether you are a lone campaign manager out there trying to make the decision about hiring someone or whether you know you are part of a larger campaign who has multiple people on your team who can help you through this process, you need a helper. You need a team because, again, you know, we as individuals have a certain perspective and blind spots and biases, right? And so the more people we can include in this process to get a second opinion, the more holistically we're able to look at candidates and look at their backgrounds. Because Santiago, what you just said is so so important of like, we want to be bringing in people from all different walks and all different paths. Um, and sometimes, you know, a traditional sort of campaign career path from organizer on upward isn't doesn't always make someone the best candidate for a job. So you want to create a team and align that team on, again, what are your nice to have? What do you need to have? Right? And then also you need systems to stay organized. Because imagine the scenario, Santiago, where you're sort of simultaneously interviewing 12 people for four positions. How are you going to make those decisions? How are you going to indicate that this person is going to advance to the next round of interviews? Or maybe this person, you have some questions or doubts or thoughts about. 
Um, and so you need really strong systems to stay coordinated. And that's why I'm so excited that we now have this tool on the Arena Toolbox about the interview process. And it has a tracker in there that will help you sort of mark and track the progress of different candidates through your process. But the first thing you need to do, bring your team together, get aligned. What does it mean to have a strong interview process? What does it mean? How are you making your decisions about each candidate? Get your systems aligned and get your systems coordinated before you head into your first interviews. Yeah, the alignment there also on like, what questions are we gonna ask people that we're talking to? Who is in charge of interview one versus interview two? Can you talk a little bit about what the differences might be at different stages or different conversation points where you're having with potential applicants or potential candidates? Yeah, so I think you should always have two interviews, a minimum two interviews with each candidate who you're considering. So I often like to sort of separate this into technical versus behavioral questions, but you can sort of view this in different ways. So your first interview can be technical skills. Like, what do you have to be able to do to do this job? You know, if Santiago, you're, you're a data wizard, like just an absolute uh, master of all things data. And so if I were gonna hire you as a data director, I'd probably ask you some questions about how you've used admin in van before, or, you know, certain things to do with spreadsheets and the way that you've managed data in the past. Forgive me, I might not have all the technical terms right now, but thinking about those sorts of things. So the first interview, I'm gonna ask you these sort of technical questions. Doing role plays as well is another way to do technical questions. So I've done this before with organizers. You know, if I were a volunteer, how would you, uh, you know, give me feedback about, you know, something that maybe I had done wrong. And so doing a little role play to kind of figure out what is that, what is the person like in action? And then your second interview uh, can be sort of a behavioral interview. We think about it more along the lines of how does this person manage people? How does this person interact with teammates? What are the sorts of things that they do uh, on a team? But the biggest thing is that you want all of these questions between your first and your second interview. Um, I know some people sometimes make the questions the exact same between the first interview and the second interview so that you can see if there's consistency along the way. That's great. If you want to make them different, uh, you therefore need to come together at the end of the process and sort of talk about both of your experiences of each one of those interviews and interactions. Yeah. And it also is like, it just seems like there's also like a scheduling thing here where you need to have some sort of follow up um, with your fellow interviewers for that alignment piece. Uh, you mentioned earlier, you threw out a number, maybe 12 uh, interviews, four positions, like the numbers can start to get out of control uh, in terms of the number of conversations you're having, keeping it all in line, like, can you give me a recommendation? Should I be, should I try to knock them all out in one day? Uh, how should I schedule back to backs? Like anything there on, on scheduling so that I can just, I don't lose my mind when I'm having all of these conversations. Oh my gosh, Santiago, please don't lose your mind because I almost have it multiple times. Um, no, if you are interviewing, be good to yourself. And that means do not schedule your interviews back to back to back 
to back. I have definitely made this mistake before. And please save yourself from this. Again, you might have some amazing candidates who you want to make sure that you inter start interviewing as soon as possible. So you might try to get them all in together on the same day, you know, half an hour, half an hour, half an hour. You want to give yourself some space. Why? Because you need to take notes about every single one of the candidates who you interview. And those shouldn't be just like good, bad, single phrases or words. You actually want to take detailed notes about those interviews because if you are interviewing 12 people, you might get to the end of the day and not remember the first or the second person who you interviewed. So you have to take notes about every single candidate who you are interviewing. You want to write in complete sentences, uh, punctuation optional. If someone else is reading them, be good to them and think about who else <laughs> is looking at your notes. So there's my plug for my English teaching mother. But on the other side of this as well is just, you know, as you're scheduling the interviews, giving yourself time for notes in between each one of your interviews and also giving yourself time to take a break, go get some food, drink some water, take a walk around the block. All the things that you have to do to keep yourself healthy and sane because again you need to show up for these candidates you need to give them your time your attention and not feel like you are running on empty or like you have 12 other things that you need to do right now and so you're going to multitask while you do this interview um, don't do that give yourself time give yourself space so that you can show up for this person. Like this interview process, this whole campaign exists right now in the middle of COVID. You're not necessarily meeting people in person. Do you have any, any tips or tricks for people who uh, are conducting this interview process for the first time, but also they're just, they're doing it online? Yeah, a couple of basics for both sides of the equation, right? Whether you are interviewing or an interviewer, you need to make sure that your sound quality is good. So test it out before you head into the interview. You want to make sure your connection is stable so that it's not cutting in and out. Um, one of the saddest things is when you're in the middle of a conversation and it just cuts short. So make sure you have a strong connection, uh, internet connection that is. And then you also have to make the decision about whether or not you're going to do this over video. I just want to put that out there because it's a really big thing. A lot of times interviews can be conducted over the phone uh, or you can do it over video. And that needs to be a choice that you make and apply consistently across your interviews because you get a lot from body language, right? So if I can see the way that you are acting and interacting, I'm going to have a whole nother level of information. So if you're doing it on video, and you are an interviewer, please make sure that you are well lit, that people can see your face. Uh, make sure that you have an appropriate background behind you. You know, you shouldn't do this maybe on the beach, maybe not doing it in your bed, um, those sorts of things. So if you're doing it on video, dress appropriately. And again, apply the rules the same for everyone across the board. If you're not doing it on video, body language is still important right? You can't see me, but I'm talking to Santiago right now, and my hands are all over the place, and I'm gesticulating, <laughs> and I'm smiling. 
And so your body language, the way that you are acting and interacting comes through in your voice. Uh, you know, we tell organizers all the time, smile while you dial. It's so true. And so even if you're doing this over the phone and you can't see the other person's face, still try to be expressive. Smile, nod, uh, make gestures. If it helps you to concentrate, walk back and forth, but do whatever it is uh, that you can to sort of express and be expressive even when it's over the phone. Well, thank you. Julia for sharing your insights with us on the interview process. Uh, I think we're very lucky that we have you as a host and you have so much good experience in this realm. So uh, just, just a preview uh, of what we'll be hearing from Julia on this podcast. And so uh, now we're gonna shift to talk to some other folks in the campaign space uh, to hear what they have to say about the interview process. I'm so excited, Santiago, this is gonna be great. For this episode of The Boiler Room, Julia and I thought it would be great to get another perspective on campaign hiring. So I spoke with Audra Gracia. Audra has her own consulting shop, Gracia Collaborative. She is an alum of the Warren campaign, Emily's List, the 2016 Hillary campaign, and is on the board of Blue Leadership Collaborative. She herself came through Campaign Corps and Emily's List sponsored training program. And she knows and understands the importance of developing political campaign talent. And that's partly why I wanted to speak with her to get her thoughts on the campaign hiring process, but also the culture in which people are onboarded to when they join campaigns. So here's our conversation. Take a listen. Audra, thank you so much for joining us on The Boiler Room. Uh, I thought it was just really important to have you on as we were talking and discussing campaign hiring. Uh, there's a lot of it happening right now, um, but there's also just, I think, a broader conversation about what does hiring look like on campaigns? And so wanted to get your perspective. And I think one of the things that, you know, I was really excited to talk to you about is just like, how do we have a better process for hiring and what that looks like? So again, thank you for joining us here today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So I think there are so many ways that campaigns can improve their hiring processes. But first and foremost, I think we really need to start moving towards a culture of inclusivity. Uh, and what I mean by that is um, that, you know, right now, the way a lot of political campaigns find and hire staff are through uh, their existing political, the existing political networks of people in leadership of those uh, campaigns, people in leadership of the political committees, and um, and the networks of political consultants. That is a naturally exclusionary process. You know, our networks tend to be people who look like us and people who come from similar backgrounds as us. And while that might make for a very comfortable hiring process, <laughs> it certainly doesn't make for a very inclusive hiring process. Yeah, and I think like one of the reasons that happens is people feel like they're under this time crunch, right? Like, you know, people should be like, we needed this person yesterday. And so it's like, how do we overcome that excuse of like either I don't have enough time or I'm just not finding the right people? Like, how do we kind of address that? Yeah, I mean, I think it really starts by our industry and the organizations that persist in our industry 
year over year and cycle over cycle, taking a leadership role in building the infrastructure necessary to support and facilitate um, smart and inclusive hiring practices. So, for example, even though the leadership at let's say the, the DCCC or the DSCC, um, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, even though the leadership in those organizations changes year over year, the, the organizations exist year over year. Like they, they are there, they're gonna be there uh, for you know, a very long time. So is the DNC. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that we could create a, a, a place where people interested in getting involved in politics could come consistently for jobs and opportunities and build resumes and, and even maybe a small team of individuals to help match the right people with um, the right campaigns and opportunities. And while we have a lot of this infrastructure kind of fragmented over a lot of yeah. different organizations, I think there there really just isn't one central place where, like, if I'm a, um, you know, somebody out in the community who is motivated by what I'm hearing in the news and I want to go look for a job in politics, like, there's not really one place to start, right? So I think it's uh, it's partly building the infrastructure to facilitate um, quick quicker hiring practices and processes to ensure inclusive processes that aren't exclusionary and based solely on networking. And, um, and, and partly it's just actually deciding um, and for the campaign leadership to decide that, you know what, this is going to be a priority. I'm going to take an extra, you know, two days to actually put a job posting at HBCUs or yeah. um, at the local union shop to, to make sure I'm being inclusive in my process. Yeah, I mean, I think the sourcing piece is big um, and a lot of it starts with job descriptions. Uh, you wrote a medium piece on kind of the slash and burn approach to talent uh, on campaigns and management. And in there, you talk a little bit about some of the kind of economic, you know, yeah. considerations that maybe we don't even account for when we're putting together job descriptions and how that is also something that's exclusionary. I'd love for you to expand on that. Yeah, I mean, I think there are absolutely economic barriers that we put um, up in front of people as, as they're looking to get involved in our, our in, in politics as a career and as a field. And specifically, some of those things are expecting people to come to um, to a campaign with their own vehicle, with yeah. their with a driver's license. Even you know, there's a lot of people who don't have driver's license for various reasons. Uh, where we expect people to come with a cell phone, um, and but yet we don't provide any kind of reimbursement for cell phone or data plans, even though we're going to be asking that person to use them all um, their their own plan. Uh, where we need them to come to a place for a two and a half month period, and yet we wouldn't provide them with any kind of housing or supportive housing. Um, so that presents challenges in terms of finding a place to live, leases if you have friends or a family network to stay with. Um, and I think what's even worse about how we, you know, put up those barriers is, is that we don't actually usually talk about it in the job description. We put out these job descriptions, we have all these great people that, you know, spend their time and effort to apply, and then they don't even find out about those, those issues in, until they get through the interview process and are like, it's between them and somebody who has a car and you choose the person with the car. And that's that's really challenging, especially yeah. for people who come from lower social uh, socioeconomic backgrounds. 
which is disproportionately people of color in our country. Yeah. I mean, I remember my first campaign job and I was so excited to, to join the campaign. You know, I was one of those people who was like just motivated and wanted to be involved. And then like, it was, then it dawned on me. I was like, oh, I have to figure out how I'm going to get across the country and have a place to live. And yeah, I think it's, it's, it's also just really sad when it comes to the decision point between two really great candidates and that's the deciding factor. I think the other huge economic barrier that we put on campaign staff, and this is such a solvable problem, it drives me a little mad, but uh, is that we have created a system where we really expect people to be okay with a two, three, four month unemployment period after the campaign is over. Um, We don't have any kind of safety net Uh, We could be spending that time training people how to do better organizing or building their skills in this business. And instead we let them, you know, off, we put them on, like they were encouraged to seek unemployment and things like that. But as we know, those systems can fall short and they're ever more strapped given the current crisis. So I think um, given that, you know, we're really in a, a 12 month, election cycle year over year in the 24 month election cycle you know cycle after cycle we should be able to figure out ways to um continue to employ people train people retain people and i think that would stop a lot of loss of talent particularly people who just really have to earn and uh, earn a paycheck in order to survive absolutely it's i feel like we're there's like a a really big there's a big structural like uh changes that need to happen in order to ensure that there's those those systems and infrastructure in place. Yeah. I, th- I think there's also the smaller level where on campaigns right now, you know, people, the hiring decisions that they're making, the job descriptions that they're putting out into the world are kind of feeding into this campaign culture. And you talk a little bit about that in the piece. Um, but for those who are not a part of campaigns right now, like how would you describe uh, the culture of campaigns and how that also is part of this this whole you know kind of barriers that to people getting involved and staying involved. Yeah, so uh, I guess I'll just if it's okay, I'll share a little bit of my personal story, which is yeah. that um, you know I got lucky. I was given an internship, a uh, paid internship, when I was first starting off in campaigns, something almost unheard of, really, even in my college uh, in Texas. That was by a a, a communications firm that was owned by um, a Latino uh, consultant who was really great at bringing other Latinas and Latinos into the fold, like myself. And so that got me my start in politics. But what I didn't realize is that once I left that kind of safe cocoon and bubble of somebody who was really thoughtful about the hiring practices and their how they supported staff um, and I got out into campaigns where a lot of the people and leadership on campaigns have never been they got to where they are because they have a really good skill right they're really good field organizer they're really good fundraiser they're really good at, at whatever job they may have done originally in campaigns but they were never really trained to manage other people. And so uh, I think that can contribute to what I've identified as a, and I'm everybody, frankly, in campaigns has probably some story about a a toxic work culture. Um, For me, it was uh, early in my career and I 
just had a pretty, a boss that, you know, didn't take me seriously, um, didn't listen to my input, but even more important just was like, not very nice, you know, and, and demeaning and, um, and it caused a lot of, it's like being bullied in school, you know, um, that can come with a, a long time trauma and it caused me to leave the business for six years. I think that is the consequence by every measure, by every metric, by every sort of, if you were looking at a performance review of how I had done my work up until that point, I had very high marks, right? Like all of my bosses thought I was a very good campaign operative, but I didn't want to be one anymore because I felt kind of like beaten down by the system. And yeah. that's what happens. We lose good, strong talent to private sector or nonprofit sectors because, you know, people who are really good at their jobs want to be recognized for being good at their jobs and they don't want to be treated poorly. Um, and so as a consequence, I think we lose campaigns because we don't have as much talented staff as we should in, in, leadership positions uh, because they go away recognizing the toxic culture. Yeah. And you talk in the piece about the training aspect for managers and creating better managers so that, you know, we have better outcomes and people stay in. Um, I think you also just mentioned something in terms of like how people get recognized and some people aren't always fit for a manager role, but like, how can we do both? And like, um, you know, what does a uh, culture of training for managers, like, what does that look like on campaigns? How can that be better? Yeah, I mean, I think this is really a resource allocation question that is very hard to answer, right? I think um, on a campaign, it is all about getting a candidate elected. It's really hard to implement management training in those moments. And it's also really hard to, frankly, absorb that kind of training when yeah. you're in the midst of a campaign. So this is where I think, you know, again, sort of the big structural pieces that uh, institutions can do more to support management training during downtime, for example, uh, you know, immediately after the election cycle, having debriefs about how things went for managers, how they could have gone better, um, doing some workshops about lessons learned, facilitating things like that, uh, professional development opportunities, if you will. Yeah in immediate post-campaign world. But I think also from a more individual level, if you're, if you are a manager in this business, um, you know, I would just beg that people, <laughs> when you are managing other people, just take your role seriously. Like that, that is a job managing other people. And yeah. Just like we would go through a fundraising training to, you know, be better fundraisers um, or field training to be better field directors, you know, you want to actually think about your own management skills. And there are so many good resources. There's podcasts out there. There's, um, you know, my favorite management philosophy book is Radical Candor. And while it is mostly applied to like the tech sector, I think it has management principles. Uh, it's by Kim Scott. Um, you know, it has management principles that really apply across industries. But there's a million management and leadership books out there uh, that, that somebody could read or listen, you know, in their audible uh, or whatever, as they're, they're going about their busy day to, to take even little bits and nuggets um, that can help them improve their jobs as managers. And then the only other thing I'll say about the individual level is that I think, you know, politics actually encourages, uh, I have an old friend who used to say, you have to have an ego to be in politics. And I think that is true. I 
I would implore managers to try and remove their ego a little bit and be open to upward feedback and actually solicit that upward feedback. Because the only way you're going to ever get better at your job is if you um, understand what you can do better. And the only way as a manager you'll get that feedback is if you actually ask the people below you who you are managing. And even just like looking outside of campaigns for you know, resources, advice on management, I think is a big thing. And also connects yeah. back to, I think, something we were talking about earlier in terms of the exclusivity of, you know, our hiring processes. Oftentimes we're excluding people without campaign backgrounds. Um, and there's so mm -hmm. much that we could learn uh, from that. And so I know that's something you and I have discussed previously, but, um, you know, I think it's just, it's important that there's lessons to learn on the management side, but then also like when we're bringing people in, um, there's so many people who are motivated in this moment to be a part of this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as we say, you know, campaigns really aren't rocket science. Um, all the skills can be can be taught and learned. And so thinking when you are hiring new talent to think a little bit, you know, for cliche phrase outside of the box of saying, okay, what does this person bring to the table? If even if they're not you know, the most experienced fundraiser or field operative? Um, have they managed people before? Can they offer a different perspective? Can they teach us how to organize in, in the communities we care so much about organizing in from a different perspective? Um, I think that's a really important consideration that we uh, need to take into account moving forward. Yeah, and I think something Julia, uh, my co-host, talks a little bit about is like that also informs your training uh, as you're onboarding people. It's like, it doesn't stop. Um, people aren't going to come in with all the skills. And so, um, exactly. I wanted to close with one uh, final thing, and you kind of touched on it, but um, I just one piece of advice for somebody who is new to uh, a managerial role in this campaign cycle. Uh, you know, it dawns on me that people who might be listening to this are in the role for, for the first time, and maybe they're, they're feeling self conscious about it. Um, but from your perspective, what's some, what's some advice that you can give? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say two things. Number one is please don't be afraid to ask for help. The people who will respond to that request are, are good people in this space. Your consultants should be your mentors. Um, you know, please, please don't be afraid to ask for help when you need it and particularly advice about managing challenges you might be having. And number two, I would say kind of harkens back to what I said about asking for upward feedback is make the time and space for uh, both providing feedback to the people you're managing, but also allowing those you're managing to provide feedback to you. If you are open-minded to their feedback and you can take that, that in a constructive way, I, I just promise you it'll be worth the effort uh, and worth the time. I mean, the, the level of productivity that those folks will be able to, you know, execute the plan on because they feel invested and bought in and listened to is just going to pay off in, um, you know, orders of magnitude if they feel really heard and listened to on your campaign. So would encourage you to, to really make that space in your one-on-ones with your, with your staff. That's great. I think, the investment piece of that is so huge, you know, because we can feel like we're so strapped for time. Um, 
and we'd be like, okay, we don't need to do one-on-one this week or something, you know, like that. And it's right. like, that investment is huge and actually does make things run smoother. I just knocked over my drink, um, but it can, <laughs> it can make a huge difference. And so really, I think that's really great advice and uh, want to thank you for, for speaking with me, for sharing your expertise. Also, thank you for writing the piece, uh, the pieces uh, slash and burn approach to talent management promotes racism, really in depth goes into campaigns uh, and some of the, some of the things that are really um, problematic in our culture of campaigns. And I want to also thank you for just being uh, really open and honest in the piece about your own experience and how you've learned from that. And I think that that humility that you bring to the piece, I think is really powerful and something that a lot of people can learn from. So thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, I will say the last thing I'll say is just that we need to keep shining a light on these issues if we're ever going to make our movement better and if we're ever going to keep uh, moving forward progressive policies. So thank you for having me and thank you for giving voice um, to these issues on your platform. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. And that does it for this episode of The Boiler Room, an arena podcast. On behalf of my co-host, Julia Leitner, I'm Santiago Martinez. Thank you for listening. Thank you.